Well, let's continue our, um, our series. I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, that you have noticed that human history is filled with epic quests. People, and sometimes entire communities, completely fascinated with and deeply committed to finding the seemingly unfindable, right? From seeking the lost city of Atlantis to the pursuit of the Holy Grail, which they say, legend has it, is the chalice, the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. To the pursuit to find somehow remains of Noah's Ark, to determining the whereabouts of Amelia Earhart. From our goal many, many decades ago to find the Titanic, which, by the way, took 74 years to find at the bottom of 12,600 feet of icy water. All the way to the epic search for Bosco. <laughs> Human beings, entire communities, are completely fascinated with finding, seeking, and searching something that is valuable to them. Now, some time ago, I, uh, I was drawn into watching a series on the History Channel. Any fans of the History Channel out here? First service, we had no takers. <laughs> One taker sheepishly came to me afterwards and said, well, I, I kind of am a fan of the History but enough hands in here to know that I'm in good company. I love the History Channel, and one of the shows that I started watching based on the recommendation of a friend was The Curse of Oak Island. Now, The Curse of Oak Island follows two brothers uh, who are attempting to find what is rumored to be an enormous amount of treasure buried on Oak Island in Nova Scotia. The History Channel turned this into an entire series. And so you see these two brothers together with very large construction crews trying their hardest to find this treasure. Now, by the way, the, these two brothers are the last in a long line of treasure hunters since the 18th century when the rumors began that there was enormous treasure buried on Oak Island. They had nothing to go off but stories some believable stories, and a few artifacts that had been found that egged them on year after year, crew after crew, to finding this buried treasure. What is the treasure? Nobody knows. Some say that it's pirate treasure, an enormous amount. Some say that it is the, the wealth that was guarded by the Knights Templar. Whatever it is, it's big. And nine seasons later on the History Channel... These two brothers are still at it, completely undeterred. Now, I need to tell you something. I'm sure at least one person in here has watched this entire series. I haven't watched the entire, so please no spoilers at the end of the sermon, if I can ask you that. Now, human beings, my friends, are completely fascinated with seeking out, searching out something that they consider to be valuable. And as and, and as well-known as all of these quests are that we just went over a few minutes ago, there is one quest, one search, that is common to all humankind, and that is our search for God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. 
You're thinking, Carson, not, not everyone believes in God. You do know that, right? Yes, yes, I do know that, and you would be right. But, but let me have us consider another reality, and that is this. Sometimes our search for God actually takes on different forms. It might look like, it might sound like our search for meaning. You hear people say that. It might sound like the existential questions that almost every human being on the planet asks of themselves, regardless of what they believe. Questions like, why are we here? Where did we come from? And what is our purpose? Not everyone is searching for a personal God, but everyone is indeed searching for truth that is found only in God. So then why do we search? If it is indeed a universal search, why do we search? Well, because ultimately every one of us want to know that our lives matter. Ultimately, every one of us in our private thoughts, when we're honest with ourselves, know that our own answers only take us so far. Every single one of us, deep down inside, feel empty with a shallow existence and long for depth, long for a connection with with something, or better yet, with someone bigger than us, beyond us. It is a universal human quest. By the way, this idea of seeking God is actually very common, and it is a central theme in Scripture. We could spend hours pouring through Scripture. We can see this over and over again. People on their search for meaning, and ultimately people on, a, in, on, on their search for God. But this morning, I'm only going to, in the interest of time, point us to one central verse that is found in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it is a direct invitation from God that I would really like for all of us to see this morning. Now, here's some context. During the time of Jeremiah the nation of Judah has been taken as exiles to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, not only have they been taken away from their homeland as exiles, but at this time, their homeland is completely destroyed, has been destroyed by Babylon. The temple, completely destroyed. The walls surrounding Jerusalem, completely destroyed. And, and here are the people of the nation of Judah in a foreign land, together with their brothers and sisters from the nation of Israel that almost a hundred years before had been taken as captives by the Assyrians. The entire nation of collective Israel is now dispersed throughout the known land either by force or because they have fled the oppression of these major superpowers of the day. It is into this moment, this very challenging and discouraging moment that God speaks the following words 
that I guarantee you, you will hear at every graduation service that you will ever attend for the rest of your lives. Are you ready? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Come on, you have to complete the, the reference with me. Jeremiah what? 29, 11. A plus for everyone, almost everyone. It is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. We love it, but maybe you've just learned a little bit about the context in which it was spoken. And here's where it gets even more interesting. The two verses that come right after it are not as well known. In fact, not as well known at all. But these are the verses that are critical to our a message this morning that we're sharing together. I want to read them to you. In the next verses, this remarkable promise is made by God himself speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Here it is, verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Verse 13, you will seek me, listen carefully, and Find me when you seek me with all your heart. In this difficult set of circumstances, as captives in a foreign land, God offers this most amazing and encouraging promise. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Let's pause for a moment. So, so where are you in your life, in your search for God? Are you, are you perhaps lost in a similar set of difficult circumstances? Do you by any chance feel that God is far, far away from you? Or perhaps you're encouraged this morning as you're reflecting on the question. You're saying, I'm actually feeling quite encouraged because, because my search for God is alive and active. Maybe that's you this morning. Or, or maybe you heard the question and as you reflected on it, you realized that you actually stopped searching for God a long time ago. And that for years now, if you're honest with yourself, you've been going through the motions of just being a member of a Christian church. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, we have an opportunity this morning, together, we have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what it means to search for God, to seek God, and we have an opportunity this morning to recommit to doing that in a more meaningful way, especially since the promise is that God can be found and that he can be known. So then what does it look like? What does it look like to seek God? You know, the Bible is filled with cliches. Why are they cliches? Because we've read them so many times, we've heard them so many times. So yes, you hear a phrase like, like seek God with all of your heart. But the question should be, what does that common phrase really mean? Now, I admit that in a short Christmas homily, 
there's no way that we're going to be able to explore together a, a comprehensive answer to that. But we can get some insight from the Christmas story itself. Why? Because there are these characters known as the wise men. There are these, these magi that you see present in every nativity set around the world. And these magi, these, these, these wise men, give us an insight because if they are anything, listen carefully, they are seekers. They are students. They are learners. And in this case, they are seeking a divine king. A king that is worthy of a celestial sign and a king that they are going to worship, not just honor, but worship. We'll see that in just, just, just a little bit. Through their story, hopefully this morning, we can gain just a few insights in what it means to seek God, what it means to search for God with all of our heart. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll stay today. And I just want you to see these words, hopefully for yourselves, if you have an analog or digital Bible. Matthew chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves of the story, of the Christmas story, of this portion of it that, it, that involves these, these wise men, these magi. And as we read through it, begin to look for uh, insights into your own life when it comes to seeking God. I will read for us verses 1 through 6 to get us started. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. As we look for insights, let's begin at the end of this particular passage that we just read. Notice that the, that, that the discussion around the Magi's quest and their question, notice that that discussion immediately centers on Scripture. The prophet Micah is quoted, and everyone's attention is now drawn to something that God had revealed through a prophet hundreds of years before that moment. In fact, I'm sure you know that there's been a lot of discussion over the years, over the centuries. How did these magi, how did these wise men know what they were looking for? How do they know the significance of that celestial sign? How do they, how do they know they were, they were looking for a king? And not only that, but a, but a divine king that, 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 that called for, for worship. How did they know? Well, the general consensus is that arguably, number one, the magi were, were well-educated thought leaders of their time. 
and clearly they had studied a number of, of manuscripts. They had studied a number of ancient manuscripts, including Jewish manuscripts. This is what they did. And so very easy to make the jump from there to the type of, of manuscripts that they studied and the kind of information that they unearthed as they studied. I'll share with you one in particular. Remember Balaam, the guy with the donkey? Now, Balaam was not an Israelite. He was found there as a, as a diviner in the land of Moab, and, and, and the king of Moab called him to curse Israel. You remember the story? And God intervenes, engages in a, in, a, in a conversation with Balaam and says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And so in the end, as the story develops, Balaam does not curse Israel. In fact, he actually leaves the king of, of Moab with a, with a very discouraging set of prophecies that are very much in favor of Israel. And here is part of the prophecy that Balaam the Moabite, by the way, Moab is east of Judah and Jerusalem. Think of where the Magi came from. Here is the prophecy that was captured in the writings directly from Balaam. I see him. This, by the way, is in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel, a very, very strong correlation and alignment with what the, the Magi were pursuing with what they knew. Now, there's another connection that is worth mentioning. These Magi were more than likely from the realm of, from the kingdom of Persia. And before it was Persia, it was Babylon. Remember, Persia conquered Babylon at some point in time. And these these, these well-educated scholars clearly had read a number of the writings, Babylonian and Persian writings, more than likely including the writings of Daniel. And you remember, Daniel was no small guy on the bottom of the totem pole. He was, he was a leading and a ranking administrator in both Babylonian and Persian administrations. And had they read the writings of Daniel, Daniel, as you know, makes a very, very strong argument with a lot of, uh, a lot of specific and accurate uh, timetables regarding the coming of someone that he called Messiah the Prince. Messiah the Prince. Good, good guess that they probably we're quite familiar with all of that. So here's the bottom line for us. How <clears throat> did the Magi's search begin? It began <clears throat> with their deep interest in what you and I today, thousands of years later, call the Bible. The Bible. So insight number one. Insight number one. If you're interested, if you're, if you're this type of listener, we're going to do three insights. Insight number one that we get from the Magi on how to seek God with all of our heart. Insight number one, a crucial starting point for seeking God is starting with Scripture. Starting with the Bible. By the way, Scripture is not a dry book. Scripture is not a, an irrelevant ancient script text of some kind. The Bible is the living autobiography of God. 
In it, he reveals himself to us. In it, you will find every factor of his multifaceted character and, and personality. In Scripture, in the Bible, you will find his purpose for mankind. You will find his purpose for you. You will find his plans for the future. And perhaps most importantly, right there captured in the pages of Scripture, you will find the heart of God. You will find what makes him tick, what's most important to him. If you want to seek God, begin by discovering him or perhaps rediscovering him in Scripture. There's a second insight that we gain from this story of the wise men. Their story begins and their story involves a journey. Let me read to you the verse again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Another one of those things that we just quickly read over. Part of every Christmas narrative we read, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Easy to gloss over, but came from the east to Jerusalem doesn't mean that they had a two-hour commute from a nearby town. In fact, historians, as they piece history together, uh, have us consider that these magi came from as far as even 400 miles, which back then would have taken easily two or three weeks to traverse, to cross over. Now, add to that this other set of factors. It's not just a long journey, but these these wise men, these magi, they are leaving their homeland to go on this journey. And as they leave their homeland, they are leaving what is familiar to them. They are leaving a place of comfort. They are leaving their homeland, which gives them standing and influence and safety. They're leaving all of this behind for a foreign land filled with unpredictability and even danger. This, for these magi, is indeed a long, uncomfortable, and unpredictable journey. Let that sink in for just a little bit, as you imagine it. Because it has everything to do with our second insight that we gain from the wise men about seeking God, about searching for God with all of our heart. And here it is, number two, truly seeking God may mean that we are leaving a place of comfort and requires us to leave a familiar place and embark on a long and unpredictable journey. By the way, this is not a strange idea, once again, if you look at the many stories of the, of the Bible. Consider Abraham. Abraham is probably the best example of this. Abraham leaves the luxury of the big city in Ur for a decades-long journey as a nomad in mostly desert lands. Think about David, for example. David, who was a man after God's own heart, has a lifetime journey, a lifetime journey of ups and downs, 
of struggles and epiphanies in his search for intimacy with God. Just read the Psalms and you will see an entire lifetime of David that can only be characterized as a roller coaster. What about those early disciples, the original disciples? Think about them for, for, for a second. Those, those poor disciples, why? Because Jesus is anything but predictable. Jesus is not predictable. And if you read the Gospels through that filter, you will see that these disciples are thrown into a number of different circumstances that today, in today's vernacular, we could only call traumatic. But Jesus takes him on this journey of three years, a long, unpredictable journey. In fact, I would suggest that every quest, every major quest that we are familiar with, involves leaving a place of safety and comfort in order to search for something that is bigger than us, in order to search for something that is truly valuable and important. I can't think of a better example uh, to share with you in our modern culture than the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, some of you may be familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You might have read the books. Um, you might have seen the films. But there we have it, Frodo Baggins, the, uh, the, the very unwilling protagonist who is thrown into a journey, a dangerous journey, an unexpected journey, a perilous and long journey in search of perhaps the most and greatest quest to destroy evil. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, who, who wrote the story, who wrote the trilogy, was an active and practicing Christian and actually a friend of C.S. Lewis, who I think you all well know as a prolific Christian writer of, of the day. The two were not only friends, but collaborated on ideas and content. And Lewis, as you know, wrote his own series, right? A fictional series with the same plot, a long journey, with an epic quest, a moral quest called the Chronicles of Narnia. So both Tolkien and Lewis understood it. They saw it clearly. Truly seeking God may require us to leave a place of comfort, may require us to leave a familiar setting, and embarking on a long and unpredictable journey. So here's another question that we need to ask ourselves in the middle of the second insight. Why does this theme show up over and over again? Again, if you look in scripture, we, we had several examples. If you look in, in modern culture, if you look at every question, why does this theme show up over and over again? Why is it necessary for us to part with the familiar and journey as we seek something valuable? Well, I'll suggest to you that first it's because what is familiar many times keeps us comfortable and okay with the status quo. On the other hand, unfamiliar territory unanchors us from what we consider to be normal and, and allows us to imagine and experience 
new realities and new possibilities. I'm sure that many of you, by the way, have experienced this somehow in life. Maybe, maybe you did move to another state or even, or even across the world and you were unsettled and unanchored. Or maybe you moved from one industry in your work to another and had to learn a whole new vernacular, a whole new language. Perhaps you've experienced this in life, but you never realized that the same principle applies to your spiritual life. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was asked to contribute to a book on the topic of certainty and faith. The goal of the book was to, to, to make sure that readers knew that as believers, we can have assurance and certainty. God calls us to a number of assurances, a number of, of certainty. So, so all the authors of the book were, were assigned different areas to focus on when it comes to the certainty that we can have as believers. I was assigned a little bit of a different topic that I should also say I volunteered for. And that was to explore the value of uncertainty in the believer's life. It was a tough gig because I didn't quite know how I felt about it. But let me tell you, researching that article and writing it was, was a wonderful, wonderful uh, a journey for me, an introspective journey in which I really began, really began to see how valuable uncertainty can be in a believer's life as well. I want to read to you an excerpt, just a short excerpt from, from that article, from that chapter. Complete certainty has the tendency to lead to complacency. We settle into an idea convinced that we understand all of its facets, and more importantly, that no further exploration is needed. We have, in essence, declared that we reject the notion of continued growth in that particular area. God, on, on the other hand, calls us into unfamiliar territory, which unsettles us just enough so that as we journey, as we seek him, we will be more attentive and more curious than we are because we are not in a place of comfort. By the way, I should say, for you, in terms of your spiritual life, this might have nothing to do with, with moving out of one geographically familiar place into another. For you, this may have more to do with leaving a familiar group of friends for a new group of friends that could potentially offer new and healthier insights into your life and into your spiritual journey. Or perhaps this may be talking about an opportunity to expand your, your reading about your spiritual life. Maybe you've read the same things over and over and over again. Maybe it's time for a new book by a new author that will challenge your thinking, that will grow your thinking, which, by the way, has everything to do with a second reason 
why this theme continues to show up, this long, unpredictable journey that is part of every epic quest. And here it is. Why is it necessary? Why does God call us to leave unfamiliar territory and journey toward him? Because as one author puts it, there is purpose in the journey itself. There is purpose in the journey itself. Something remarkable happens when you go on a long journey, and that is called growth. Growth. Think about it. Moses, after having fled Egypt, spends 40 years in Midian, all the while learning, growing, preparing his thinking. It was 40 years before God gave him his first assignment. Think about, think about Saul, Saul in the New Testament. Saul became Paul, arguably, within a matter of minutes on the road to Damascus. But before Paul begins his official ministry, Paul disappears off the stage for Arabia, where he spends a few years. And only after those few years, he comes back and fully engages. And a a lot of theologians and historians argue that he was there forming his thinking, maturing his thinking. Think about who, who, who Paul was when he was Saul. A journey involves growth, which is why God calls us on the journey. And finally, think about those disciples. We, we talked about them earlier. They spent three years with Jesus, a long, intense three-year journey. And after that three-year journey, they had lo- learned a few things, but think about those final moments before the crucifixion, even the Sunday after uh, the crucifixion. The disciples still, after three years, didn't fully comprehend the mission that Jesus came for. They still had to learn. They still had to grow. My friends, if anything, let this be an encouragement to you today. Your spiritual life, your search for God, for the the heart of God, your search to understand his, his ways and his thinking, that is not an overnight phenomenon. That doesn't happen and shouldn't ever happen Instantly, it is, it is a long and progressive journey, and each of us is at a different stage along that journey. So you know what? Cut yourself some slack. Each of you is at a different stage of that journey. And by the way, while you're at it, cut your neighbor some slack. Cut your coworker some slack. Dare I say, cut your local church member some slack. Each of us are at different stages along that long, progressive, unpredictable journey of growth. So, a quick summary. We've learned two things, two insights from these magi. Number one is our, our search for God is best started by discovering God in Scripture. Number two, truly seeking God may require us to leave a place of comfort, may require us to leave a place of familiarity and embark on a long and unpredictable journey that results in growth. Two points. One last one. One last insight. 
Let's go back to Matthew and let's read verses 7 and 8. And that's all we'll read today. But let's see how this story continues and let's see if we can draw from here a, a, a third point that you and I can take home with us today. Then Herod called the Magi secretly <clears throat> and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He then sent them to Bethlehem and said, uh, go, and, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so, so that I too may go and worship him. So what do we learn? What is the third insight that we learn from the Magi about seeking God? It is this, that when we set off to seek for God, when we begin our search for God, we will encounter obstacles and opposition that seek to challenge our resolve and even will try to discourage us from continuing the journey. See, Herod, by the way, he, he should have received an Academy Award for that performance, right? Don't you agree? He is amazing. He feigns all sorts of sincerity, right? He, 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 he pretends that he has the best interest at heart for these, these intelligent magi. He even promises that if they come back to let him know what they have found and where specifically they have found him, that he too will indeed worship this new king. In the end, you know what he's planning on doing. He plans to completely disrupt the leadership potential of the Christ child by killing him. And who knows what he plans to do to the magi when they return. How do we know that it's probably not something good? Well, look at in verse 12. Here's what it says, same chapter, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the Magi, returned to their countries by another route. Who knows what Herod would have done to them had they returned to him? Here's the reality. Every one of us will encounter Herods along our spiritual journey. Every one of you will encounter obstacles and opposition along your spiritual journey. Maybe it's a difficult set of circumstances at your work or in your home. Maybe it's an unforgiving community. Or, or maybe someone who, who has your best interest at heart, but wait, do they really? Because in the end, they don't really want you to go on this spiritual journey for one reason or another and will find very subtle ways to discourage you. Here's the important thing. The important thing is for you to know that you will encounter obstacles and opposition on your spiritual journey, number one. The second thing is to know that that is perfectly normal for any of us perfectly normal for any person along a spiritual search to encounter obstacles and opposition. But number three, and most importantly, we need to know that it is still us. We are still the ones who can make the choice for how we will react to those obstacles and oppositions. As we conclude this morning, there's only one final question that hangs in the air. It's a big one. It's a big one. So before we go to that final question, let's review the three things that we learned from the wise men, from the magi. Number one, 
if we want to know how to seek God with all of our heart, number one, our search is best begun by starting to discover God in Scripture, the living autobiography of God. Number two, truly seeking God may require that we have to leave a place of comfort, that we have to leave a place of familiarity and embark on a long and unpredictable journey that leads to growth. And number three, as we seek God, we will, capital will, encounter obstacles and oppositions that seek to discourage us along our journey and test our resolve, but the choice is still ours as to how we will react to them. Now then, here's the question. Why does God ask us to seek for him? Is he actually hiding from us? I thought about that for quite some time. And, and as I did, it occurred to me that the best way that, that I could understand it and the best way that I could share it with you this morning has something to do, in fact, maybe has everything to do with a really great birthday present that I got recently. So, you know, every, every person has a bucket list of, of items that, that they'd like to own you know, sometime in their lifetime or a bucket list of, of hobbies that they'd like to pursue. For me, I always wanted a metal detector. <laughs> Ralphie wanted a Red Ryder BB gun. I wanted a metal detector. And I talked about it for years after Leah and I got married. And finally, Leah and the boys surprised me one birthday with an awesome and an amazing metal detector. Now, let me tell you how this works. Imagine, remember what we're trying to do, we're, we're trying to understand the answer to the question, why would God ask us to even seek for him? Why wouldn't he just reveal himself to us? So, let me tell you how this works. If I had a neighbor, and that neighbor had a really great coin collection of rare old coins. And he knocked on my door one day and said, Costin, you know, really enjoy being your neighbor. And I just, as a show of gratitude, I, just, I would like to give you this rare old coin from my collection. Now, clearly I would be very appreciative of it. And I would say, thank you. And I would, I would take that coin in and I would, I would put it somewhere special. But you cannot compare the value that we would give that same old rare coin after taking that metal detector out to that field or that backyard or wherever you might be and searching and digging and searching and digging for hours and hours and hours and digging up out of the ground 20 useless pieces of junk until finally out of that hole, out of that out of that pile of dirt comes roundness in the hole. The old, rare object that you found. And now you understand. You will seek me and find me 
when you seek me with all of your heart, now we understand it is not God playing hard to get. It is God knowing that he will be immensely more valuable to us when he is found. So go and seek with all your heart. And I promise you that you will not be disappointed with what you find.